Hey, it's Anthony. Hope you're having a great day. We have got an amazing podcast for you today. Uh, we want to get right to it, but let me just give a quick introduction. Gary Logan is someone that I have admired since I was a young actor in high school. He introduced me to Shakespeare. He introduced me to the highest level of integrity for voice and speech, and he has just an amazing amount of credentials to his name. He's written some of the best books on Shakespeare, and he teaches some of the best actors on voice and speech. He's run an MFA program for 12 years in Washington, D.C. at the Shakespeare Theater. I could go on. The point is, get your pen and paper out. Get ready to sponge everything this guy has to say. My whole goal was to just ask him questions that he could just run with. And I think he did a beautiful job in this podcast. So let's enjoy it. It's Gary Logan talking about voice, speech, and Shakespeare. Enjoy. All right. Hey, Gary. Hello, Anthony. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to talk with you today about voice and speech and definitely some Shakespeare. Same here. And uh, for everyone listening, I was I met Gary in high school when I had the fortune of um, him coming as a guest teacher when we were uh, studying when we were producing Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, he totally opened my eyes to a world of scansion and text analysis, Shakespearean interpretation that has served me ever since and uh, I've been grateful to him and he's got an expertise in voice and speech I'll kind of let him share his story here in a minute but I, I think there's not enough great things to say about Gary as a as a teacher and as an individual so again thanks for being here thank you very much Anthony uh, I want to give you the floor so tell us you know before you were the amazing Gary Logan uh, <laughs> How did you get introduced to voice and speech? What compelled you to develop an expertise in Shakespeare? Like, tell us who you were before and how you got kind of the key moments that led you along in the journey. Uh, sure. Well, I grew up in a military family, so uh, I've had a lot of homes. And being an actor, I've had to move around a lot, too. So I've had uh, in total 39 different homes all over the United States wow. and lived in Europe. Lived in Europe for a few years. And uh, but I was I was. Uh, the child of uh, parents from the South who sounded very much like they were from the South, one from the mountains of North Carolina. And uh, my mom had a Piedmont dialect from North Carolina. So uh, very North Carolinian kind of sound in my household. And we lived in Texas five different times also. And, and so there were lots of linguistic influences all over the place. But because I had to move around, um, I had to make friends very quickly. And it was kind of easier for me to adapt to sounding the way people sounded around me. So I think I just got used to the idea that we are, we're always changing, we're always adapting. And everybody, everybody that's listening right now has done that in some form or another in, in their life for one reason or another. And, uh, and so uh, when I decided that I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to uh, more or less neutralize, not neuter my linguistic heritage, but but neutralize it as much as I wanted, or just to be able to uh, speak the way I wanted to speak on command. And that had to do with things like pronunciation, breath control, uh, res voice resonance, uh, things like that. Yes. I think everybody who's listening can totally relate to that. Uh, I think we'll get into that a little bit more like uh, later. Um, but first I want to have a fun, I want to ask you a fun question just about like, your voice and speech class 
uh, if we didn't mention this, uh, you are the head of voice and speech at Carnegie Mellon, one of the top drama schools in the world. Um, you have a long history, um, and we'll make sure your bio is in the description when people listen. Um, but right now, I want you to describe your voice and speech class in three words. Wow. Well, before I do that, I just want to say that uh, uh, at Carnegie Mellon, we don't um, uh, we don't happen to have the titles of he uh, head of, except for the head of the school. Uh, I am the professor of speech and dialects, uh, okay. and I also do voice work. Okay, three words to to uh, describe one of my classes. Yeah, um, like for a, like the experience. Like I guess uh, if I was a student who was going to come into your class, what should I expect? If if you had to give me three words of like, okay, this is Gary's class. Sure, uh, I would put it this way. Presence, breath, response. Beautiful. Love that. Love that. All right. So let's get into a little bit. So like a question, how mm -hmm. does voice and speech impact acting? Because it's often unclear and kind of assumed like, okay, we need diction. Uh, we need to be able to project our voice. There's, there's a lot of common understandings, but like, yeah really from you, what, what does voice and speech do for us as actors? Well, it, I think what it does is it, it helps puts us, put us in touch uh, with our own capability, our own abilities to, uh, to be authentic. Uh, because I think listeners, no matter who you are in whatever language you're talking, can detect things in a person's voice. They can detect uh, tension, uh, stridency, uh, authority. There are all sorts of things we can hear kind of in the, uh, the, the fabric of sound when somebody's speaking. And so I think that actors, uh, mainly want to be convincing, sound truthful, uh, and, and feel natural. And I think that that's where, uh, the voice and speech work comes in. Yeah. Uh, it's huge. Uh, you know, when you're developing as an actor, <clears throat> you, you know, sometimes we tend to play with uh, character voices, which can easily tip into uh, false, you know. Yeah. And so it's like, how do you find the uh, true voice that you have while still honoring, you know, character idiosyncrasies I, for for like. You know, obviously, we uh, help students with college auditions. And, and so in that regard, mm -hmm. if I'm rehearsing for a monologue or preparing a monologue and I want to implement some voice and speech exercises, you know, what is there like uh, a couple exercises you recommend to touch base with that breath or to find that authentic voice? Yeah, I think I, I think I could suggest a couple. I mean, when, when you're auditioning, obviously, and everybody says it, and it's a lot easier said than done. But people really do want you to be yourself, and yet we know that we're acting a character. <laughs> so there's a there's a cognitive dissonance right there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so in terms of just who you are presentationally when you walk into a room, uh, it's it's nice to be kind of just who you are. Um, and then you you bring the the, the skills that you've practiced and learned uh, to the table when you're doing a piece. Because pieces aren't usually, even though they may sound casual, they're not usually completely pedestrian. They have something to say. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so 
uh, I think that that's a little bit of a challenge at first when we start uh, the audition process. Uh, in terms of getting in touch with with um, one's voice and uh, and exercises that I would do, I'm, I've course I, I of course uh, uh, gravitate towards the classical material because most of my career has been um, about Shakespeare. But um, and and most auditions, at least for theater. Uh, still do want, uh, require some classical piece. And we can talk about what that really means in a moment. But yes. um, but, uh, but when I, I think some, I think some young, young actors think that they have to be then ultra careful with the way that they pronounce everything in sort of an over-articulate or didactic way. And that really isn't the case and not how Shakespeare writes. Shakespeare writes in a very kind of a uh, common uh, way that that English speakers speak when they speak rapidly and colloquially. It's uh, he, he puts it into the writing, and so th- things have a, a certain flow uh, on the breath. So I I think uh, breath exercises are are great things to do, so that you always have good diaphragmatic breathing, and that you've got a nice reserve of breath, so that you can say these long, compounded, complex ideas, which Shakespeare writes in sometimes. Um, and uh, it makes sense and carry the thought yeah. for as long as you have to carry the thought. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, tongue twisters are great uh, just to get the tongue kind of nimble. And I really do believe in uh, light humming. Humming is a great thing to do, particularly in the higher register of, uh, of your voice. Just great. a really light humming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I remember, you know, one thing I was wondering about is also uh, like exhaling or or sustaining a hum or an open ah for kind of as long as your diaphragm can go. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's also suggested. That's a really basic one where you basically breathe in from your diaphragm and then you kind of exhale on a ah or an e for yeah. as long as your breath could go. Does that help with the uh, conditioning of your breath? It completely does. I would, I would say this. Uh, I would, first of all, have whoever is doing the exercise uh, lie down on their back. It's a lot easier, first of all, to feel the belly distend and, and uh, the diaphragm rise as it contracts um, so, so that you can get a really feeling of what's happening with the bellows action of uh, the diaphragm, which, which uh, uh, is bringing the lungs down and thus bringing air into the lungs. Once that happens, when you talk about the word exhale, some people do confuse what that, uh, what that really means. That means. Some people think of exhaling as doing something, like pushing the breath out. And, uh, and so I, would, I usually uh, don't usually do uh, vowels because vowels are open sounds. And if you want that breath to sustain for a while, you want to do it on a, uh, a sound that gives you sustainability, but uh, uh, but is throwing the egressing breath stream, the breath that's leaving your body, through a very constricted passage. So what I usually have somebody do is either a slight V sound, as in Victor, or a slight F sound, as in Frank. So they'll lie down, but they don't have to push. Once mm. they breathe in, once they take that full, full breath into the lower, lower lungs, all they have to do is just create that F and let the belly just start falling. It's kind of like a, a, an air mattress that you buy, that you have your guests sleep on. 
when you when you open the nozzle, you know, the morning they leave and let the air out, you don't have to really do anything. The air will just fall out of that mattress. It will just de- deplete to an extent. And, right. and then you have to lie on it. Well, you want your uh, your body to sort of let the air just go through that F sound for a long, sustained period of time until you have to do the engagement action to put the rest of the breath out. That's how Absolutely. I would do it. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, that's, that's a great um, tidbit. Um, I think people can definitely work on those things and improve their voice and speech with some of that. Let's, let's transition to what you were kind of uh, mm-hmm. mentioning earlier about Shakespeare. You know, mm-hmm. like there is a conversation about, especially with international students, but even American students about standard American speech with Shakespeare. If yeah. I have a regionalism or an accent of any kind, do you recommend in a, in a college audition scenario, like honoring that and emphasizing it or, um, trying to find, as you said earlier, a more neutral way um, that the the speech can be, you know, like what yeah. do you recommend regarding that sort of conversation? Well, I re- recommend that all young actors uh, do what's called ear training. And ear training is, uh, is something that I teach. And it's basically uh, finding a, a way of listening and listening to oneself and listening to others and and then finding a way of affecting or executing the sounds that they want. And the reason is we want to be in as much command as we possibly can of the way that we sound so that we can make uh, the most optimal choices when we want. So let's take a person who might be, say, from the eastern side of Kentucky or the western side of North Carolina, someplace that has to do with the mountains. And we probably all have an idea in our head about what those sorts of sounds sound like. Um, it's, it's very hillish, you know, and, uh, and very sort of country sound. Uh, right. There is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with sounding that way. Right. Uh, or sounding that way, if, or, or sounding like you come from Brisbane, Australia, or Waco, Texas, or Central Valley, South, Southern California. There should be no shame casting about the way we sound. We sound the way we sound usually because we want to and because we are, uh, our psyches are attached to the way we sound. We hear our parents in them. We hear our friends in the way we sound. These are really important to us. But as an actor, when you start to assume characterizations and you want to play characters of maybe different station or status of, of uh, a being like uh, Henry V or whatever, uh, you might want to make a, ch- a choice, but if you don't have options, if you don't know what your choices are, you're only going to be acting by default and doing what you you do by knee jerk. And um, and so, ear training and learning all the different kinds of ways that you might want to sound, in terms of resonance placement and tonal focal placement and uh, all of these other things, dialectally, uh, will be at your disposal. So. Uh, I, I would not be uh, put off by somebody who had a very strong, say, southern U.S. accent or dialect if they came into an audition. That doesn't throw me off at all. I love it. It's great. Now, are they also able to do something else? Right. I think that's, uh, I think that's what we want most of our actors to do. And I think all of, your, all of the young 
people who are listening to this can think of some actors that they know and admire uh, film, television and whatnot, who they only found out wasn't American when they saw them on a late night talk show. (laughs) (laughs) And you go, oh, my God, uh, this this person is is not who I thought they were. You mean they have been putting on something all this time and had me convinced? Well, that's that's what actors do. And, uh, and so uh, and, and, and when they're on the talk show and they're talking to their families on the phone or, or, you know, they're in their own kitchen, they can talk any way they want. But when they're doing a role, they they opt to speak in a different way. Yeah, so I think that's what, I like. I like. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just I think that's what's important. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you said is interesting and, and, and really important for people to remember as you develop your craft which is it is a craft. You want to have command, full command over that, you know, voice and speech so that you can actually make choices, You, which means you have the ability to um, sort of allow your natural um, way of speaking to be present. And you also have the ability to make a completely different um, regionalism sound natural. You That's have cool. that command and it it involves your breath it involves your um you know vocal physiology and your mouth and all your articulators so that's kind of why it's a craft in that you have the ability to use it like a tool right uh i want to transition not transition but continue down the shakespeare road Mm -hmm. um let's get a little bit nitty-gritty into some of the shakespeare acting principles obviously if you're auditioning for college you have a varying degree of Shakespeare experience from I'm terrified of Shakespeare and I've never done it to, you know, I've done some shows, but I don't really, I've never really studied it. And then all the way to, you know, somebody as fortunate as me in high school where, you know, I was taught by someone like you and was able to be around an environment that really promoted diving into some of that. So in terms of that, like just, cover a couple of core principles that in your experience have had a real good impact on students. Like what are some of the things that are foundational that you think can stick with students at any level? Sure. Well, I'm hoping that students will uh, pick up on something that maybe has never been taught to them. And that is this Shakespeare seems like almost an insurmountable peak a mountain to climb, and that it is highly, highly, highly scholastic. Right. Uh, to a degree, that might be right, but I would say that it's more, It's Shakespeare was not writing that way. He wasn't writing uh, treatises and uh, uh, liturgical material and essays for court and whatnot. He was writing about real people, uh, who had real problems and uh, conflicts and how they were resolving to get out, get out of them. Mm-hmm. And, and it's in the language, it's in the writing. And even though the language is 420 years old, it's, um, it's, it's actually the common person's speech. Mm. It, uh, it's, it's something that is attainable. These are down to earth kinds of people because they're not all Henry V. Most of them are not. Um, and, uh, and so I would say that one, just know that, have the confidence that this is something that you can wrap yourself around. Yes, we all get better at it as time goes on. Uh, that's that's sort of a given with everything. 
you get better at bicycle riding the more time goes on. So, so not to be uh, too intimidated about this. Um, I, I just wouldn't hold it up as a sacred cow. That's one thing. Right. Um, the, um, the second thing I would say is I think a lot of American actors, young actors, get their taste for Shakespeare uh, and experience it for the most part, maybe I would say more than 50% from, um, from British productions. And so I find in very young actors that in, in a way they start to imitate that action and believe it or not, start to sound a little British, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right. just a little bit Britishy. And, uh, that, that's probably not the route you want to take. Like I said, be yourself. Uh, it's okay to be American and still do these roles. That's another thing I would sort of take into the space. The other thing is that um, when we're asked to do audition pieces, uh, sometimes they ask for two classical pieces. And, but, but regardless, they usually say, and we want contrast. And that question of contrast is an important one. I don't think that a, a young actor needs to find the piece that makes them laugh and the piece that makes them cry. Uh, mm -hmm. that's not always the kind of contrast that I think auditioners are looking for. Well, I know that's to be a fact because I've auditioned thousands of people for programs and, um, uh, it has much more to do with whether you can transform elementally from one type of person, uh, in terms of typology into another type of person. Uh, yes, I want to empathize and sympathize with what you're doing and saying, on those, I want to resonate with them on the empathetic and sympathetic levels. I want to feel something from, from what you're doing. I want to believe what you're saying. And as long as there is a difference, it's not just you saying a contemporary piece and a classical piece and just wearing different clothes or hats, figuratively speaking. It's, uh, it's about uh, changing sort of something inside your inner nature. And um, uh, classical pieces don't have to be what's called arch. They don't have to, uh, they don't have to be wear fancy pants. They, right. they, they're special. Yeah. But they don't have to be, uh, Shakespearean, you know, and in an old fashioned sort of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That was such good stuff. Um, and you know, I wish we could, maybe if you're open to it, we can have another podcast completely about your experience in the audition room where we talk specifically about things, you know, that, you know, all auditioning actors deal with. But if we stay on the uh, Shakespeare and voice and speech track here, because there's so much more to mine. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. When you were saying that, I was thinking about one of the upperclassmen when I was in high school, one of the upperclassmen who got into... Um, great schools and got called back to yada he was our favorite actor uh somebody i looked up to he he did do his shakespeare in a british accent and i was always like what <laughs> why are you doing that it just made him feel i guess more shakespearean or whatever um anyway he's fantastic but i've never heard it from you know you, it's funny that you say that because it maybe it happens more often um so great yeah i think we're, we're getting access to Shakespeare. We're gaining access to voice and speech a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that we know is a component of good acting is the freedom of voice, the vocal yeah. inflection, the ability to have dynamics and range. Yeah. Uh, 
if I'm an actor who kind of tends to maybe be a little more monotone or I haven't mm -hmm. yet figured out how to express myself with a wider like range, yeah. are there exercises or, or maybe books to read or, or how can I kind of explore a wider range of voice in myself? Okay, that's a great question. First of all, English is spoken all over the world. Um, and uh, natively, but also as second or third language. And each of those tongues, if you will, and those countries bring different kind of linguistic habits into the English that they speak. In the United States, we speak on a narrower bandwidth of the vocal spectrum overall than, say, if you came from England or Australia, who are also, of course, native English speakers. So uh, when I say that, that means that's, that's getting to what you were talking about, the monotone. It's not just one note, but, but instead of working off of seven notes, we might work on three or four. Mm -hmm. So it has a tendency to be a little bit flatter, which is not great because the way the language is written, and is obviously uh, the, the Shakespeare course is obviously written by somebody from Britain who has these, um, uh, Shakespeare who has these, these linguistic habits and tendencies anyway to inflect more uh, than we do. We have to be careful as Americans because it's more difficult for us to eke out of what's being spoken things like um, uh, contrapuntalism or juxtaposition or antitheses if we don't know how to, um, to give emphasis to operative words. Now, the inflection question is really important. Shakespeare writes verse in verse lines. Uh, they, it's not like the prose. They, they have their own integrity. The, uh, the thoughts are more or less hammocked or situated on each verse line, even though you might be in the middle of a very long sentencia. So uh, I'll give you, for instance, uh, the, the piece from Julius Caesar where Antony is uh, speaking the soliloquy, which starts, Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth. Now, if you just take the, that, that's one verse line. Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth. Okay. Uh, syntactically, grammatically speaking, that is a sentence. And uh, the way that I know that, or the way that I interpret that sentence is because of my inflection. If I go down at the end of it, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, then the listener is automatically uh, geared the way we speak and listen to English. We're, it's encoded that when the person downward inflects, they're finished with their thought. And so I assume I'm finished with that thought if I were listening to that. Um, but he's not. He's, he's actually not going to be done for a long, long time with his overall thought. It has to stay aloft. And how you do that is through inflection. And there's no exercise per se it's good this goes back to ear training you have to understand that everybody inflects all their life they know we know how to do it it's just that we don't usually know how to take uh somebody's text or script off a page and then transpose it into natural speech borrowing or bringing with it all the things we do when we're in the grocery store or talking to somebody we do it all the time we inflect mm -hmm. Exactly. So, I could, so I take that line and I can swing it. I can do what's called a circumflect and end at the end with a slight upward inflection and give a person the clue that I'm not done. So instead of, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, 
which, like I said, is a full sentence. But if I said this, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, it swings up at the end a little bit. Right. And you go, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. This is the way that we kind of get a listener's ear to attend for a longer period of time. And and also, so for the language not to sound uh, monotonous, and also not to lose energy at the end of each of these first lines. And my presumption is that most people, when they're auditioning using classical material or Shakespeare, are in the main, in the main, doing verse. Yes, there's going to be a percentage of people that are going to choose that comic role from Shakespeare to show off their uh, acrobatics and their comic technique and things like that, and that will be in prose. But for the most part, if I'm an auditioner and I'm asking for a classical piece, I'm trying to find out not how you handle old words, but how you handle the form of verse. And, uh, and, so, uh, and so most of those piece, pieces will be verse, and we don't want those to sort of drag at the end of each verse line. We want them to carry us along. Yeah, that is such good stuff, primarily because it's simple to understand and having it in our awareness just is another tool that allows us to use our voice with a little bit more intention and craft and artistry. Um, And it's funny because when you came to teach us back in high school, I remember one of the examples you used was Richard II, Mm -hmm. um, a lack, why am I sent for to a king? And I'll never forget how you demonstrated those two things. Um, You dropped your voice at the end of it, and then you performed it where you inflected up uh, at the end of it. And it totally made sense. And we were all taking notes. And two years later, there I am auditioning for college. um, And I used that piece. I, Uh I, you know what? It's not that I even remembered that you did that and I called back to it. I mm-hmm. honestly was flipping through my complete works, just looking for chunks of text. I came yeah. across the huge, you know, five or 10 minute monologue that he has. And I just did those first 12 or 16 lines. And I, and I do remember that the audience is going to think that if I say this first line, a lack, why am I sent for to a king? and I drop my voice, yeah. it's like the whole piece just kind of got deflated or it got heavier. <laughs> yeah, like, that's true. You know, yeah. whereas if you go, Alack, why am I sent for to a king? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you know, there's something going on there just vocally, not even to mention my emotions and how I'm uh, inhabiting the imaginary circumstances. All of that is, of course, required, but it just a vocal technique can be another um, a way to, like you said, keep the uh, ear of the yeah. audience for those long thoughts. Exactly. And, and, uh, and your students can practice this one thing. Now, a lack, why am I sent for to a king, does contain within it, thankfully and conveniently, uh, an interrogative word, the word why. And we have other words like that, why, when, where, who, how, things like that. But not all questions have an interrogative word. So how is it we know we're in a question if not inflection. So if, you're, if your students say, uh, you're going to the store, if they just say, you're going to the store, that's declarative. It might even be taken as an imperative. Uh, you're going to the store. But if I said, okay, there's no interrogative word. There's no why, when, how, where, who in that. 
how do you ask that? They have to say, they have to say, you're going to the store? Right. And all of a sudden they go, oh, wow, I really am using inflection to send a signal. And so, um, so that's sort of how we practice. So this is amazing. Um, hopefully we can continue to mine um, some of your advice and perspective. Um, and we are wrapping up. And I want to let you um, share a couple of resources so that if someone was particularly interested in continuing their knowledge and building um, voice, speech, Shakespeare. I know you've written a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so what are some of the maybe maybe uh, recommendations that, you know, uh, an actor can continue their learning from this podcast? Sure. Um, I think first and foremost, in terms of the voice training, would be Kristen Linklater's Freeing the Natural Voice. Uh, that is probably the most important book on voice written I'll put a period at the end of that. It's the most important (laughs) voice book written, in my opinion. Um, It was a game changer. It was written in the late 60s, and nothing about it is uh, less pertinent today than it was the day it was written. Uh, And there is uh, whole pedagogies in programs around the world are, are designed around Kristen Linklater's book, Freeing the Natural Voice. So that's the first place I would go to. Uh, for, um, for Shakespeare, uh, well, I, I would, <laughs> I would, um, take Please. a look, I would take a look at my own book. Uh, it's called, it's called the eloquent Shakespeare. And even though the long title of the book is the eloquent Shakespeare, a pronouncing dictionary for the complete dramatic works with notes to untie the modern tongue. That's the whole name of it. That's the uh, best name ever. Yeah. <laughs> University of Chicago press. Um, there, even though it's a pronouncing dictionary, which I, which I really do think is important, uh, how, how we pronounce things, um, there, there is a short 30 pages or so of explication at the beginning of the book about Shakespeare's language, about how it works rhythmically, uh, things like that, that I would take a look at. And I think it puts it in a very succinct way. In other words, I don't have to uh, uh, open a whole tome uh, to know what it is I'm doing. Uh, those are the, those are the first two I would look at. That's awesome. Yep. I remember when you were writing that, <laughs> right. uh, we were thrilled, um, could not be a better resource. Um, and I agree with the freeing the natural voice, um, at Juilliard, they gave us that. And they also gave us the voice book mm-hmm. right. by Michael McCallum, yes. um, which has helped me ever since I, I love that. So, just great resources. Um, with that, we'll, we'll kind of sign off. Any final thoughts? Um, you know, these folks are uh, auditioning for drama school. They're auditioning for the top schools. They're auditioning yeah. for schools that are their dream schools. Like, as a person who's watched thousands of auditions and stuff, is there something you can kind of leave as a, a little general words of wisdom for these folks? Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so, anyway. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier uh, about being yourself. Uh, two everybody who's auditioning you, I want to, I want to believe this anyway, but in every audition I've had a part of, and as again, again, I'll say it's thousands, it's literally thousands of auditions. And I ran a master of fine arts program in acting in classical theater in Washington, DC for, for 11 years. And I worked 20 years at the Denver center for the performing arts. And, uh, and, uh, and now I'm at Carnegie Mellon, um, thousands of auditions, 
the people auditioning you, you, you have to know, are really there wanting to uh, hear your best. They, 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 it's, most people do not. I haven't ever run into, actually, anybody in my experience, thank goodness, who's sitting there like, prove it to me. You know, show me. Yeah, me what you yeah. It, what they're doing is they're actually like they're 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 kind of in your corner. They're inside. They're actually cheering you on. They want to see what you bring to the table and how you play with the language and how how you let yourself your own uh, self exude in these pieces. So that's one thing I would uh, carry in with you, just so that you have the confidence that that you're not taking an exam. Uh, it's not. It's that's not right. Thing. That's right. It's not the same thing at all. Uh, and, uh, and then the second thing is uh, be curious, uh, curious about everything, curious about every word in your, in your text, whether that's contemporary or Shakespearean. Look those words up. There are people trained all over the United States, uh, and, um, and they may pronounce a word differently than you. And you may wonder why. And you may think, oh, they're, they're ignorant or they don't, they're, just, they're not in the know or whatever. Then you come to find out you're the one just based off of your own circle of friends and experience that are not pronouncing a word in a, in a traditional way. Right. And that that's mean, usually what happens is yeah, you're the one that actually could have, you know, right. learning. We, we all go through it and we all learn. And it's not here to say that you are mispronouncing it. It's just that there are other choices and perhaps more optimal ones. And, uh, and so a good actor makes good choices. You have to know what those choices are, but a good actors make, a good actor makes good choices. My presumption then is that better actors make better choices and that the best actors make the best choices. Oh my goodness. What a line to end on. <laughs> um, no, it's very true. And I really appreciate it. Gary Logan, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Anthony. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Yes. We will talk to you soon. All right. Take care.